0: pharmacy podcast nation and especially our community pharmacy owners do you ever feel like you're getting pushed to do more with less there's a product out there i'd like you to take a look at doing more for your pharmacy and more for your patients is important talking about the pen needle ulti guard safe pack for the same copay for your patients as pen needles alone the UltiGuard guard safe pack provides 100 premium pen needles and a sharps container, all in one. When pharmacies dispense the Pen Needle UltiGuard Safe Pack, they see consistently higher revenue and higher margins. Check this product out today and let us know what you think. Go to pack forward slash podcast. That's UltiGuardSafePack forward slash podcast. You can get a free sample pack on the website. Thanks for all you do as frontline health care providers, and thank you for listening to The Pharmacy Podcast.
1: You're listening to The Pharmacy Podcast Network. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and all your favorite podcast players. Join the Pharmacy Podcast Nation today.
0: Pharmacy Podcast Nation. This is Todd Urey, founder of the Pharmacy Podcast. This is something extremely interesting to me today that we're bringing to you, and that's the environment side of our health and how that impacts population health, which is a buzzword right now that that must mean um, outcomes. It must mean something that can be connected to pharmacists and research and in the world of pharmacogenomics and testing how does a medication affect you and it doesn't affect me based on my dna and how does my environment affect me that might maybe if not affecting someone else and what does green have to do with anything what does my uh my tree um the trees that around me bushes that around me um have to do with my health i was fascinated in 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 to get introduced to somebody who really understands this and is studying this, uh, Dr. Theodore Smith, who's an associate professor with the Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology um, with the um, with this School of uh, Louisville, uh, U of L School of Medicine. Um, welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast, Dr. Smith.
1: It's great to be here. Thank you.
0: You have um, opened up a can of worms that I'd like to dig into that is very meaningful and I grew up in the country. Uh, we just before recording, we said we're both uh, southwestern Pennsylvanianians, and the in the in the around the greater uh, Pittsburgh area. And I grew up way up north from you uh, in Opal, Pennsylvania. But lots of green up there, lots of country. Um, and when when I looked into your background and what you were studying and the department that you're leading, the University of Louisville uh, named you uh, the official. Uh, to direct a center to overlook uh, the research of how environment is uh, is impacting health. Um, what an interesting topic. I want you to give our listeners an overview of yourself and the department
1: that you're leading. Sure. So um, as you mentioned, we uh, were in the School of Medicine at the University of Louisville, and um, you know our our focus is really the uh, environment's impact on health outcomes. And, uh, you know, we're all very, very uh, comfortable with thinking about the role our physiology plays, our, our genes and, uh, you know, kind of what we're born with and how our bodies function, how our metabolism operates, all that. As if everything happens as a little, you know, kind of chemistry cooker inside a sack of skin um, all by itself, right? And the truth of the matter is we've always known uh, for thousands of years, you know, that we are somehow a function of... Uh, kind of our, uh, our physiology and the place that we're, you know, placed, right, and uh, the circumstances that we're placed within. And we do know that when those things are compatible, that, you know, generally speaking, good things happen, right? So th- there is an environment that we're all, you know, fit for, if you will, and then there are environments we may find ourselves in that we are not fit for, and when we uh, don't have a fit between our physiology and our environment, one of the things that we get is disease. And um, it's particularly important in these times because we can see just how important it is, especially in the in the developed world. Uh, the, the thing that limits human lifespan is uh, it's chronic disease, like heart mm-hmm. disease. Um, uh, like autoimmune diseases, like I mean, these are these are um, diseases that we didn't used to die of as a species, and now these are the things that ultimately limit human life. And so, knowing this, that somehow our health outcomes are a, a combination of these two things, and these two things need to be harmonized, um, really then drives a whole big research agenda for us, which is how should we understand which parts of the environment are important uh, to which parts of our physiology. You know, so we, uh, we, it's a very wide-ranging research agenda. I won't go into the whole uh, spiel right now, but I mean just, you can imagine our environment at at least at three levels. There's the natural environment that we're part of, which is which part of the planet we're on, our our latitude, our altitude how much, you know, how long our days are and all those kinds of things are in the physical environment. There's our social environment, which is all the things that people have done to sort of create the environments around us, so the built environment and cities, uh, the nature of social networks and the way that uh, culture uh, plays a role, uh, the way we cultivate food and all those kinds of things fits in the social environment and then our personal environments so that two people growing up in the exact same household could have very different lives because they have some personal uh, you know, view, their own, their own version of that environment, even though a lot of it is shared, like our genes are shared greatly as a species, but we each have different trajectories. And so this idea of the environment really needs to be deconstructed. And we're, uh, we have several large projects that are focused on pieces of that. And I know we we're maybe talked today a little bit about the Green Heart Project in Louisville, which is just very much focused on something as simple as how much nature is in our cities and uh, what role does that play uh, as it it relates to heart disease.
0: This is not new. This has been studied for quite some time. Out of the BBC had an entire um, portfolio of articles and research called the 100-Year Life and they, there was a part of it called gardening could be the hobby that helps you live to uh, to being 100 plus. And they were talking about these blue zones that have certain factors and common social support networks and daily exercise habits and this plant based diet for starters and in the the richness of the soil in your fingertips and what that does to your skin and that's fascinating and and what's so funny is how you know there's an aspect of science that um, moves forward and I feel like it pulls us away from nature and then there's the other that uh, is is very um, altruistic and in in coupling of nature, and this uh, this uh, green belief is part of this research of your 120 plus person uh, team that that is really putting a ton of time and research and money into this. Please expand upon what you had just said about um, the the what I'm going to call the green team.
1: <laughs> yeah, so the, the green team is working on a project we call the Green Heart Project. And um, you know, just as you just said, there's a there's a bunch of published literature out there going back for many decades that uh, has demonstrated a correlation between health status and uh, proximity to nature, and um, it's most specifically clearly articulated as. Uh, proximity to green spaces. Right. And so the good news about doing research like that is um, it actually relies on satellites that orbit the earth that take essentially uh, high resolution images of how much greenness there is around all different parts of the world. And then you can back the population into those satellite images and uh, you can do work then uh, country level, at the city level, and at smaller scales. And what we know to be true, with over 120 peer-reviewed published studies at all these different levels of uh, granularity is that there is a benefit to living near green spaces. And so, and it's a a powerful benefit depending on which disease you look at. We look at cardiovascular disease and so uh, the uh, reduction in mortality is significant for cardiovascular disease for people who live within certain distances of green places. And, you, and I love how you brought up gardens because what the literature will show you is that um, while there's no published dose response curve like we would expect in a good drug study, um, when you look at uh, the different proximities that people have studied, it appears that the closer you get, you continue to get uh, advantage statistically. So that means having a park down the street is good. Having uh, having something uh, right across the street from you, like a bunch of trees in your neighbor's yard, that's good. Having a garden right outside your window, that's really good. <laughs> so it turns out it's on a big continuum. So if you live in the middle of a concrete jungle in a city and nature involves a commute, then you're probably in the worst situation statistically, right? And it only get, it gets better as you get closer persistently to nature. And so so that's what we know from correlational studies. Here's the problem. Correlation is not causation. We all know this This is a statistics 101 conversation. And so the fact that there are 120 or so peer-reviewed publications that show this advantage, uh, it's met with a certain amount of, uh, you know, appropriate skepticism, you know, which is to say, no, you know wealthy people tend to live in nice places with lots of greenery and maybe poor people don't often you know are, are in situations like that and there's environmental justice issues and inequity issues in the world and you know so, so we know that it's complicated and it doesn't lend itself to a clean empirical uh understanding and so we um, embarked on an ambitious um, gold standard approach to this, which is to do um, a a controlled clinical trial. And that means we would need to introduce greenness in a controlled fashion to a population that has less greenness right now and, and have another population that's not getting the drug. right. And um, we would study that group of people over a period of several years, and we would see whether the introduction of all of this greenness had a health benefit. And so our Green Heart Project in Louisville, Kentucky is in four neighborhoods where about 22,000 people live. We are planting 10,000 trees uh, in, in those four neighborhoods. We have done a clinical baseline where we've done a full workup on folks for all of the cardiovascular biomarkers and cardiovascular status, a number of other things, psychosocial things, and um, you know, as, as many other things as we think we could try to grab along the way. We're measuring air pollution. We did baseline air pollution in the area. And now we're about to plant all that stuff. And um, then we will come back and do a post-test and look at vascular, um, essentially, um, stiffness of the artery in the neck which is a, a well-known marker for cardiovascular disease progression. It's the kind of thing that you can set your watch by. That it will your arteries will get harder as you get older. And if we see a, a reduction in the rate that the arteries are hardening, that would be promising. If that were in that one group that got all that greenness. At the same time, we're we measuring air pollution because you know somebody is going to want an answer to the question. Well, how did it work? Right? So it's one thing to say when I put the trees in, I got this effect. It's another thing to have what we would think of as a mechanistic understanding. So think of all those great drug trials where for the most part, there's also, um, you know, a, mechan- a thesis of the mechanism that's at play that I'm, I'm the reason I'm giving you this statin is because I know it's going to affect this particular process, right with lipids. Right? And then I go and I prove that I changed the lipid profile and I knew about the statins and I knew what it did with lipids. For us and for, for nature, you know, one of the leading ideas is that these you know, trees and bushes are big air filters and they're cleaning up the air. And so if we see uh, a reduction in heart disease and a reduction in air pollution after planting all this stuff, we're one step closer to um, elucidating uh, a a mechanism, if you will. Now, if we see people getting healthier without any change in air pollution, then we're stuck with a new problem, which is what else might be going on, right? We know that vegetation emits biogenic compounds. So maybe the trees and bushes themselves are producing some kind of chemistry that we've never really uh, studied before and so we would have the you know the beginnings of a a platform to do that kind of work.
0: Well I'm reading also about the Green Heart Project which is extended throughout the country and there are a group of students that were engaged um, by the Green Heart Project in Charleston County School District where eight of them in in Charleston County uh, South Carolina and the eight of them participated in this um, this planting of, of trees and gardens, and they call it urban farming. And it's fascinating that this is, this is spreading um, throughout the country. And, and I'm sure it's, it's something that could engage uh, young people and, and even, you know, high schoolers per se, if not even, uh, you know, I think of my own eight-year-old and getting involved and really learning about um, what, Nature does for you from a nutritional perspective, but also just the surroundings that you're that you're within and I'm lucky enough I live in the country, but I don't really leverage gardening gardening as probably as much as I should and when you were talking, I was thinking of you know a controlled environment where they could see. Seniors, or young people, or participants—really, yep. you know—engaging together in in growing and in gardening and, and planting. So that's fascinating, uh, Dr. Smith.
1: Yeah, no, we. I mean, we think this is very much the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there are um, yeah, there are many directions to take work like this. Um, we have. Um, what what we call um, a platform of ancillary studies that go on around the Green Heart Project. And, you know, for example, um, you know, perhaps the reason that all of this nature in cities has a health benefit is because um, we're getting closer to uh, returning to uh, a kind of circadian rhythm that our physiology is looking for. So maybe the, the light cycle in a city you know, which is highly artificial in most cities, begins to get mitigated as you have this kind of vegetation around, right? So if you think about, you know, you think about light pollution, and all this, we've extended daylight in cities, right? That extension of daylight has health consequences, right? We, our bodies are not used to having days artificially extended. So we know that nature could play some role in restoring us. I like to think of it as to our ecology, right? And so, you know, think of us as all in uh, the, the little animal in the terrarium. <laughs> My right. question for you is what terrarium did they put you in <laughs> and does it have enough stuff in it to support a healthy life for you? And I think from our perspective, you know, we, you can take this in all sorts of we can look at noise, you know, we can look at obviously we can look at air quality, we can look at um, aesthetics, right? And just, you know, whether these are are pleasing environments to you, whether they're calming to you. I mean, there's a a lot of dimensions to the terrarium. So if we can sort of ground ourselves in, what ecology am I in? And is it sufficient for me to have a healthy life? And if it's not sufficient for all of your listeners who are uh, in pharmaceuticals, um, you know, I, I will tell you, there are plenty of examples where we've moved people around who might've been adapted for a certain kind of environment. So think about, uh, the amount of, um, UV light there is in different parts of the planet. Um, there are many people with vitamin D deficiencies, you know, quite frankly, because they don't get enough sunlight Mm -hmm. to manufacture enough vitamin D and those individuals are at much higher risk for heart disease. And so, knowing that you might have a person who, you know, from their great history, genetically, was expecting more UV radiation in their daily life and suddenly has been put in a terrarium where there's not enough UV radiation for them to manufacture enough vitamin D to uh, have a healthy immune and cardiovascular system. Those individuals need need supplements, right? They need a vastly different diet to make up for what the rest of their environment has missing right? So, so that changes the whole pharmaceutical industry in important ways, right? Then the pharmaceutical industry potentially is complementary to these mismatch situations.
0: That's fascinating. I always um, immediately think back to the pharmacist who's committed to uh, their community and, and patient health and, and injecting the suggestion for stress relief tied back to um, green and gardening and trees and walking and just got done talking with doc, Dr. Ashley Dwyer who uh, works with uh, clients um, mostly professionals and trying to de-stress their lives and help them to leverage exercise and nutrition and one of the suggestions for our chain pharmacists have got to be some of the most stressed out healthcare care um, providers out there is uh, you know every once in a while to get out and take a walk um, you know to to give your that 10 to 15 minutes of just being outside and and you know getting away from that busy processing of like 800 to 1200 prescriptions in a day, and it makes me think of you and your department. So this is this is quite amazing.
1: Yeah, no, I mean we um, in some in some ways I, I like to when I talk to my kids about what I do, I, I like to say we we're, we're we're trying to return to, you know, kind of a more fundamental wisdom that I think we used to have, you know, which was, you know, that, that we should expect to be, uh, you know, kind of good, you know, creatures on this planet, right? So we, we you know, we should know how much water to drink because we drink when we're thirsty. We should know how to breathe. We should, I mean, the, the number of books I've read about what you would just take as common sense, you know, unfortunately is not common sense anymore. Right there's there's a wonderful book on sleep you know, written by that nice gentleman out at Stanford, I mean you know the fact that we have to remind people to sleep enough, is is a little bit crazy, right? And the fact that we have to remind people you know how to breathe, <laughs> you know is is also a little frightening, right? Because I mean these are these are things that I think we suddenly got too busy to be human, and uh, then we got too busy to care about our connection to the rest of the ecology. And unfortunately, you know, I think we ultimately will pay the price for the disconnecting of the cords, if you will.
0: Several, several of your projects are requiring sensory data and in, in data collection, and not only, um, you know, the collection of the data, but then using the data to, to point to things that are impacting health, such as noise pollution and pollution overall, and some of the biometric data that you're getting back. Can you expand upon that a, a bit? Because that that also has been fascinating to read about.
1: Yeah. So the um, you know when when I when I speak with great envy about our friends in in genomics and all the omics fields, they have um, very very fancy tools, very expensive tools, um, and a very um, you know kind of robust understanding of their domain, right? When you do a full genome-wide scan or you do a, the transcriptome, right? Like how your genes express themselves and make proteins and all those wonderful things. That is so complex and elegant. When you turn to the environment and you say, show me the magic tools, <laughs> right? For Show me the tricorder, right? For the environment, we don't have one. Mm-hmm. And so it turns out we can't make progress unless we can sequence the environment right so what would it mean to sequence the environment it would mean you would uh you would have sensors that could characterize all these things how much noise is there all the time how much air pollution is there all the time how much sunlight is there you know like all all of these things are infinitely easy to detect i mean they're very we know how to detect them but we've never brought it all together in any um, meaningful way so that it could help us on our health journey because you know i i can't take it a piece at a time right i know lots of people that have air monitors hanging outside their homes (laughs) and i mean that's just unfortunately one just tiny little piece right and and you know like a lot of the diseases that we're talking about they develop over lifetimes and your exposures you accumulate over a lifetime you know very rarely are you in a situation where if i just had one little piece of information one snapshot i'd figure it out you know we're talking about diseases that they take a lifetime to develop and you know their mechanisms evolve over time and so we need to take the long view with the environment and the way that it works in our life and we need to build the tools so we you know we're aggressively always interested in new tools that sense the environment and 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 there's a there's a wide range of parameters in the environment but we you know we uh, we'd really like to see the the tricorder that essentially says Hey, you know, what were you exposed to in the last five years? Right. <laughs> and I'd love to be able to sit down. I mean, if my doctor were trained to to ask that question, what have you been exposed to in the last five years? I don't know. Maybe it would lead to a different treatment plan. Maybe it would lead to a different guidance, you know, for my diet or my exercise, right? But we we aren't connecting these thoughts.
0: So, you know, the stimulation of our kids and technology, I'm old enough to remember before there was any video game and I'm giving away my age by saying, you know, my first one was Pong. And I remember the day that there was no such thing as a video game. And I I experienced something just two weeks ago with my eight and 10 year old. And we did a whole bunch of activities. I took some time off. We went to Ohio Pile, which is a um, kind of like in nature. The only
1: white water you can find near Pittsburgh?
0: Exactly. Exactly. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's lots of uh, nature and white water and trees and walking paths. And one of the section was the 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 home or the nature made water slides that you kind of have to push yourself through. and it's it's a bunch of uh, very fast moving water that cut out the rock. And now, of course, there's different pools that people go into and soak in and kind of play around in. And I asked uh, at the end of this week period um, from going to the Columbus Zoo and, and looking at the, the water slides there and going to this nature, what their favorite part of the vacation was. And they said, Ohio pile. And I'm like, uh, it was free. We went, it was free. And that was their most favorite part. And I think there's something in our spirits. I think there's something inside humans that were drawn to these environments. And even though both of my... Uh, daughters live in what I would call, you know, urban and, and country environments, they still were very much drawn to that. And when I read more about you and your background and what you're studying through the Center of Health and Air and Water and Soil, um, you know, specifically, and the grant that, that, that you're getting in order to expand this research, I, I, can't, I, I can't think of a reason not to incorporate this into our big data studies and our outcomes, in our way of treating and, and, and stress, you know, de-stressing yourself by being around it. And, and it makes me excited for, uh, for science, but it, it's also making me excited to be in pharmacy and to suggest some of this um, to our patients because there's lots of consultancy now coming out of pharmacy, especially in the senior care space and institutional space where a pharmacist has direct access to the patient follow-up from the therapies that have been suggested and have been prescribed by our physician to have influence to other things like diet and surroundings. So I'm going to not only talk about this, but we, we got to get this episode out to more pharmacists and then encourage your team to, to do a follow-up and in, in participate in really expanding uh, these ways of thinking.
1: Well, I will tell you we need the pharmacy community desperately in this work and and it is because you know there's tremendous power in the synergy right in the the co-prescription of things right so um you know conjoint therapy that is you know maybe I'm at risk for hypertension um there is probably a pharmacological agent that will be helpful and there may be uh, some environmental circumstance that amplifies the effectiveness of that pharmacological intervention. And and every day we're not working together, you know, and, and some of that's research, right, to, to develop these uh, these therapies conjointly, right, understand them conjointly. And, you know, some of that's just asking the question, right. I mean, we, we all understood grapefruit and statins, (laughs) right? And that was a chemistry experiment. Um, You know, Take any medication that's ever been prescribed, and I think we haven't really sat back and thought about what is the relationship between sleep and this medication, really? And if we don't know the answer, instead of saying, ah, we don't know, I mean, I hope somebody was just write it down, like, hey, we don't know the relationship between sleep and this hypertensive medication. And maybe someday somebody wants to go chase that, right? And if, if we really sort of worked on these things, I think we could have remarkably more effective uh, pharmaceutical interventions, remarkably more effective, right? Because we'd be taking advantage of things that facilitate or inhibit the way they work. And they would be p- tools in the arsenal of the pharmacist, right?
0: I think of the... Data that's being collected by the EHRs in um, you know hundreds of thousands of uh, primary care offices and going back to uh, before we started recording your comment about knowing more about my health via my zip code and how that zip code could be an identifier of longevity and in, in basic health I, I think that's fascinating share share that with with our listeners before we wrap up.
1: Sure. So, um, you know, recently there's been a, um, a a real interest, especially from the health insurance industry, on understanding the what we call the social determinants of health, right? And so we we come to this recognition that your health um, is much more. Uh, than the the, the little bit of time you spend interacting with the healthcare delivery system, right? The little bit of time you spend with your doctor, a little bit of time you spend, you know, getting a test or whatever it is. But we know that the rest of your time is somehow having an outsized, uh, appropriate influence on your health outcomes. So we know, for example, that people that don't have stable housing or people that don't have uh, reliable transportation or uh, have access to healthy foods, we know that those people don't do well you know, from a health perspective. So, so we've seen that work pushed into. If I knew your zip code, I could probably take a pretty good guess about the kinds of diseases that you uh, that will burden this community, mm-hmm. just based on some of these parameters. So, so people will will use the throwaway line. Your zip code is a better predictor of your future health status than your genetic code, and that's absolutely true. If I had your 23andMe profile and I had your zip code. I promise you, I wouldn't look at your 23andMe profile at all. I would only look at your zip code and I would be able to start to hack away at some parameters that that might be important to improving your health.
0: That's fascinating. There's a a PubMed uh, article that I'm going to uh, put in our show notes that references um, in various cities across America, the average life expectancy in certain communities are 20 to 30 years shorter than, um than one's uh not even not even 10 to 20 miles away from the others and that just blows me away something I never thought of about never really realized and is something that that we have to pay attention to for this so-called buzzword population health which, which is becoming so much more popular uh, just did a podcast that we released um, about a week ago with um with a an expert kind of trying to give um, a predictive analytics in the world of how Walmart's getting into uh, bigger spans of healthcare in certain areas. And boy, the very first thing I think of is, is, is placing uh, those kinds of um, hypermarket environments where your dentist, your eye care, your primary care, your pharmacist, and even your labs are all within that same area. But um, forgetting about your zip code and your environment and the green around you and the encouragement to engage with uh, activities like gardening, I think that's going to play a huge role in in uh, longevity and then just living better, so you're less stressed.
1: Well, I will tell you. Just we'll wrap on this. Um, you know, with this pandemic that we're we're all surviving through. You know, we'll have a good opportunity. I mean, I see people walking around all the time. They're spending more time in nature. Your trip to Ohio Pile, um, you know, I think we're going to see some of this immune function uh, on display here. I mean, there are, I mean, unprecedented times where people are really spending much more time outdoors, much more time you know, in, in places that they never would have spent time in. And then we're going to take a look at who was ultimately susceptible, who actually who came to an infectious disease. And I, I, I wonder if we'll find that there are different immune profiles that have evolved over the way people chose to uh, deal with this pandemic.
0: Well, you're um, giving a reference to a, a podcast I'd very much like to do with you in follow-up, which is the co Project. So let's, uh, let's put let's a, let's uh, do it.
1: We'll put a pen in it and we'll do it.
0: Exactly. Put a pen in it and we'll be back with it. But I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Ted Smith for, uh, for this time and sharing with our, with our listeners, uh, your work. I'm going to have, uh, show notes, a little information about, uh, Dr. Smith and, uh, Ivarom, um, you know, in your project and the institution and and just, uh, and, and, and just get this out to as many people as we can. If you're listening, please share this podcast. This is a amazing findings and something that I think there's lots of pharmacists out there that can tap into, especially our community pharmacists who have access. They're seeing their patients 10 times more than their primary care physician. And I, I think this is an important part of health. So thank you. the podcast please do the podcast